Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show today. I am Liz, joining you as usual from Central Virginia and the ancestral homeland of the Monacan people. So I've been looking forward to the conversation that I'm about to have for at least a few months now. But before we dive in, I want to tell you about a few things that are coming up that I'm pretty excited about. First, if you've been listening to recent episodes, you've heard me reference revelry. This is an online celebration of all the abundance of the harvest season that I'm co-hosting with the amazing women behind Girl God Books and she on the tip of her tongue on Saturday, September 25th. Well, our registration is now open, finally, and our full lineup is available at our website, revelrycelebrations.com. But I just want to give you a little taste of what we've got in store for you. We're going to have drumming and dancing with the wonderful Alessandra Belloni, who's been a guest on the show before. Maybe you've heard her. We've got storytelling in the Yoruba tradition with our esteemed foremother, Louisa Tesh. We've got self-care practices with divine feminine coach Seema Karal, music that will make your heart sing with Mary Isis, and we've got food, medicine, poetry, a lot more. So check out our website, Revelry Celebrations, for all the details and to get your tickets. Next up, I am really looking forward to joining the women behind the community advocacy and change platform Advaya for their upcoming 12-week online course, The Call of the Wild Feminine, which kicks off on September 28th. So I'm teaching during the first week and I'm actually feeling both honored and kind of humbled, no, really humbled because there are so many women that I admire and that have influenced my journey who are also part of this teaching team. In particular, I'm going to be laying some groundwork with a discussion of who the sacred feminine is and how we can approach her during the first week of the course. And I would love it if you joined me. Sign up details are going to be in the show notes here, and you can find them on my website to hometoher.com. Okay, one last thing. Many of you know that there's also a Home to Her Facebook group with thousands of people from all over the world sharing information about the sacred feminine. So if you're on Facebook and you haven't joined us already, please do. I love this community so much and have loved watching it grow. And for a long time, I've been wanting to create a community experience that would allow those of us who want to, to go a little deeper into sacred feminine wisdom and practices than we can really do on Facebook. So stay tuned for an announcement and more news about this coming next month. Okay, that's it. Now let's get on to the main event. And speaking of Facebook, I was introduced to the work of today's guest through a home to her group member who recommended to me a really amazing book called Shakti Rising, Embracing Shadow and Light on the Goddess Path to Wholeness. Well, I read this book, I loved it. It's highlighted from beginning to end pretty much. And I learned so much from it. So I'm really excited to welcome the author to the show today. Dr. Kavita Chanayan, is a cardiologist and professor of medicine at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine in Royal Oak, Michigan. She is the founder of Shabda Institute and the author of The Heart of Wellness, as well as Shakti Rising, which won the Nautilus Gold Award for Best Books of 2017, and Glorious Alchemy, Living the Lalita 
Sahasranama. I hope I got that right, Kavita. You can correct me if I didn't. No, that she, was perfect. Okay, good. <laughs> and she is joining us today from her home in Michigan. Kavita, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz, for having me here. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I, there's so many things. I've got a long list of things that I'm, I'm hoping we can we can explore. But I usually like to start with guests um, by getting a little bit of a sense of your religious and spiritual background and what what you were introduced to and exposed to as a child. So I'd love to start there if, if that works for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I grew up in India and I was um, you know, my parents were not particularly into, you know, uh, any religious kind of thing. Although uh, we were, I was raised in a Shaivite family and uh, we did our fair amount of, you know, rituals and things like that, particularly around uh, important days. But the, you know, my frustration actually began because I was really deeply called to, um, you know, this this idea that there's something more to life and that happened very early on in in my life. But there was there were really no good answers. For instance, why do we do things the way we do? And mm. um, the answer was always because this is the way it's always been done. <laughs> and um, that was just not enough. And I was very frustrated by the time I came to high school. I was um you know, looking for some deep answers and not getting them. And very miraculously, it was really in high school, you know, that um, my life kind of changed because I was sitting in a biology class when I was in like eighth grade. I was new to the school. I had just moved from another school and I had trained in classical Indian music and um, you know, I used to sing and so on. So there was this highly intimidating uh, teacher. She was our math teacher, but she was also a Sanskrit scholar. And everybody was very wary and afraid of her because she was a, had a very no-nonsense kind of an approach. And in the middle of biology class, she walked in and whispered to the teacher, who was teaching the class and the teacher looked at me and pointed to me and said, you know, said, there she is. And so this teacher, this math teacher, whom I had never met before, I had never spoken to her. She looked directly into my eyes and said, come out. And I thought, oh no, now what, what did I do? Right. <laughs> so I got up and I went out and she brought me to the hallway outside the classroom and she said get ready because from today i'm going to teach you the bhagavad gita and i want you to learn how to chant because i want you to go to bhagavad gita chanting competitions and i was not given a choice in the matter she said get ready meet me after school at this spot and that's it. My life changed after that. Wow. I met her that evening. She gave me a tiny copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which I still have to do to this day. And she started teaching me how to chant. And um, she sent me to competitions. 
eventually she started you know having me come to her house which was very close to the school after after school and i would go to her house and she started teaching me more of advaita vedanta bhagavatam te- you know like teaching me the stories and the philosophy and so on and uh so mind you i had grown up in a shaivite family and for those of your audience that really don't know what that is it's a you know a shaiva shaivite means followers of lord shiva yes okay and uh the bhagavad gita is really centered around lord vishnu and <laughs> for people who are not really familiar with how this thing works in in india uh it can be kind of opposing um you know a lot of shaivites will not worship vishnu a lot of vaishnavites who are worshipers of vishnu will not worship shiva there tends to be tension between the groups occasionally but for me you know it was perfect because i was prior to this my life centered around uh, lord shiva and then i came to the bhagavad gita and krishna took over my life and i would say to this day the bhagavad gita is one is my favorite text and i have um studied it for now 35 years and it's what i teach in the shabda sangha and um that that's how basically my life began you know in this area of spirituality and through medical school and through my life everything that happened really was an unfolding from that day because the bhagavad gita became my constant companion i would um i would even long after i had left that city and moved away i continued to learn to chant on my own and uh, and read it and study it so it uh, it just unfolded in that direction and years later you know i started studying um, advaita vedanta very seriously and and then eventually came to the shakta path which is centered around shakti the divine feminine and um got initiated into shri vidya and you know so it's it's been a, <laughs> a very uh interesting mix of shaivite and vaishnavite and shakta kind of backgrounds all melding into one <laughs> wow i have so many questions for you just <laughs> I I uh, it's so interesting to me. Okay, first I want to ask you if did this teacher ever explain why why you? Why she chose you? No. No. And <laughs> you know, with her you don't ask those questions. And by the way, you know, she's actually a very well-known Vedantic teacher right now. Oh. And she's constantly on TV and you know, she's teaching the masses and um she was she could converse proficiently in sanskrit and um and you know she is beyond amazing so you you don't ask those kinds of questions you know when you see her she's very intimidating <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. so i never asked her i just you know i was very grateful for my great luck <laughs> mhm Yes, well, and I I want to ask you about the your study of the Bhagavad Gita too. So I okay, I bought a copy of it when I was 24. Uh-huh. And um I I tried to read it and I just I it, it was very different from anything that I grew up with, which I grew up in a Christian household and um 
I, I really, I wanted to understand it and I didn't. And I, at the time I had no spiritual community, you know, to, to guide me or help me. So I still have it. <laughs> it's yeah. still, it's still on my shelf. Um, but I, I, I guess I'm curious, well, is the, it, it, what is the story of the Bhagavad Gita really about? I know that's probably hard to summarize, but maybe you could tell us just a little about what, what that holy text is about. Absolutely. Um, and I never get tired of talking about the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so no, no worries at all. So, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is set right in the middle of this epic, one of the two main epics of uh, India. And this epic is called Mahabharata. And Maha is, you know, great. And Bharata is, it's, it's really centered around this dynasty and, um, you know, people think of it, of these texts or these epics as myths, but that's not actually correct. It's not a myth. It's history. It's more itihasa rather than a myth. And so this is set, you know, this whole uh, epic is set in in what is known as the Dvapara Yuga, which is somewhere in the probably um, the third century BC, but don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is this, you know, huge dynasty. And eventually what happens here is that there are two brothers who end up having children and the cousins these two sets of cousins become uh, rivals and the younger brother is um, Pandu and he is he becomes the king just because the older brother is blind he's born blind and that creates a lot of tension um, and begins this rivalry between the two brothers which kind of gets accentuated and emphasized with the children. So the younger brother dies, Pandu dies, and the older, the, the blind king, um, or the blind brother becomes the king, and he has a hundred children, um, 100 children, <laughs> imagine that. And the <laughs> oldest of his children is Duryodhan, uh, that's his name, whereas the younger you know, brother, who dies quite early in his life has five sons born of two wives. And so the older brother's um, children, you know, they are highly insecure and jealous of these younger cousins because these five brothers are highly, they're very able, very intelligent, highly respected throughout the kingdom and so on. So they kind of grow up in that rivalry, each trying to excel and outdo the other. Eventually what happens is these princes, they grow up and the Duryodhan, who is the, um, you know, the oldest son of the king, he wants to become the crown prince, whereas, you know, Technically, by all rules of the land, it should be the oldest son of Pandu, the deceased brother, who should actually become king. So these brothers kind of hatch a plan to get the five cousins out of the way. 
And so they spend years and years trying to trick them into, you know, being sent away and trying to kill them and, and so on and so forth. Eventually, it, it comes to a head and, they're, you know, they declare war on each other. And so this whole saga is about that. So I'm trying to summarize it in a few minutes. And so what happens in this whole process is there is a parallel story of Krishna, who is born and raised in uh, Vrindavan. And that's another whole story, uh, <laughs> a beautiful story, which is, you know, which interested people should read in the Bhagavatam where, you know, Krishna is, is an avatar of Lord Vishnu and he is known as the supreme avatar because he comes to earth completely equipped with all of his powers. In, and Lord Vishnu has several other avatars, nine other avatars, eight of which are, you know, um, already known and the tenth is yet to come. But... Um, each of those prior avatars are not the full supreme avatars because, you know, they kind of manifest one particular aspect of divinity. Whereas with Krishna, all aspects of divinity are in full display. So his birth is a miracle. His childhood is a miracle. Is everything he touches turns to gold. Everybody that even lays eyes on Krishna, it falls in love with him. Everybody that hears his flute falls in love with him. He is the quintessential, you know, supreme divine being that is born and raised in Vrindavan. And he is related actually to the mother of the Pandavas or these five brothers who are the sons of Pandu. And um, so Krishna is also known as the kingmaker because Throughout his life, he actually never becomes king of anything, whereas he actually makes kingdoms and kings and so on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he is asked for his advice when all of this is happening. He's quite close to the family. And he says, don't do it. This war is going to be a disaster. Settle this peacefully. Duryodhan does not listen to him. He says, no, I want war. And eventually, you know, both the Arjuna, who's the hero of the uh, Mahabharata, the third brother of the Pandavas, is very close to Krishna. And so they are trying to rally up these kingdoms to fight with them in this great war, the Mahabharata war in Kurukshetra. And um, both these, you know, cousins, Duryodhana and Arjuna, reach Krishna at the same time. Now they have their armies assembled they need to go to Krishna and ask for his help. And he has an army as well. And um, so they go to him, they reach his palace at the same time, and Krishna is pretending to be asleep. And he wakes up and looks at Arjuna first, because Arjuna goes and humbly stands by his feet, whereas Duryodhana impatiently stands by his head. So when Krishna opens his eyes, he sees Arjuna first and he says, well, what are you two doing here? As if he didn't know. And um, Arjuna says, well, you know why we are here. We need your help in the war. And Krishna says, well, here's the thing. One of you can have my entire army, which is a very powerful army. But the other one of you gets me. But here's the thing, 
you can get me, but I will not fight. I will only be a guide. And this is because Krishna, remember, he is fully endowed with all powers and all it takes from his from him is really one glance and the all of creation can be annihilated so he says i'm not going to fight this is your war you fight but you can have me as a guide and arjuna without any hesitation by the way arjuna's you know uh, the pandava army is still very very small compared to the very big army of the kauravas or duryodhan's uh, army and still Arjuna picks Krishna and he says, I don't care about the army, I want you. And Duryodhan is ecstatic. He's like, wow, now I get to have an even bigger army. Now I my victory is, is a given. So they both leave happy and, you know, the day of the war is here. So all the armies are assembled and Krishna becomes Arjuna's charioteer. So he's driving his chariot and he acts as his guide. And uh, Arjuna says to him, if, you know, the war begins, see these in, in those days, once you got onto the battlefield, everybody, you know, would blow on this, the conch or the conch, mm -hmm. you know, this, the, the seashell, the conch thing. So everybody has their own and everybody blows on it, which means the war is on. And once you have done that, once you have blown on this conch, there's no turning back. You can't leave the, the war. You can't leave the battlefield. So everybody goes on and does that. They blow their, on their conches. After that, Arjuna says to Krishna, I want to get a sense of how big this, these armies are. Can you show me? And Krishna takes him, takes the chariot to the middle, you know, of the battlefield where he can lay eyes on both the armies. And Arjuna looks around and he is suddenly becomes powerless and despondent and miserable and depressed. He says, my gosh, here on the Kaurava army, these are my uncles. These are the people in whose laps I played as a child. I'm going to have to kill them. These are my uncles, my cousins, my brothers, my friends. How can I possibly do this? And he looks around and looks at his own army and he knows most of these people are going to be killed too. And he's, you know, Arjuna is the, the greatest warrior of his time. He has trained all his life to become a warrior. He has trained all his life to be here at this war. And he has powerful weapons and boons from, you know, divinities everywhere in every realm. He has conquered his own desires and his sleep and so on. I mean, this is the greatest warrior of his time. And he has a panic attack and he says, I can't do this. And he, you know, sits down in the chariot and says, Krishna, I cannot fight. I'm going to leave. And the whole first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is this. Arjuna basically telling Krishna why he should not fight. And Krishna listens to him. And he, he says, this is not becoming of you as a warrior at all. What are you doing? And 
Arjuna is so despondent. He says, no, I can't do this. And finally, he comes to a point in, this, in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, and he says, I really don't know what to do, Krishna. Please tell me what to do. And that's when the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita begins. Mm-hmm. When Arjuna lays down all of his knowledge, all of his powers, and he surrenders to the guide and says, teach me, because I don't know what to do. Until then, you know, Krishna is quiet. He's not really saying anything, just a smile on his face. And then he begins talking. And and that's when the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita begins, where he says, listen, who you are really cannot be killed. Besides, all these people are already dead. Life and death goes on in a cycle. And mm-hmm. it is, you know, this higher knowledge is the purpose of life. So that's how he begins. And, you know, the teaching unfolds over the next 17 chapters. So this entire teaching is given in the middle of the battlefield, which is really our life, right? When you think about it, it's our life. It's in our day-to-day activities where we are in constant war with what we think we already know, how the world is, and our inner world and our outer world is in continuous conflict with how we interpret the world, how we think the world should be, how it shouldn't be, and all of that. And that's how our, you know, this is our dharmakshetra. So the the first two words of the Bhagavad Gita are dharmakshetre kurukshetre. So this dharmakshetra, which is our personal battlefield, this is where the teaching is given. So this the, the reason that the Bhagavad Gita is so revered is because it is so practical. It is applicable to our moment-to-moment life when we are like Arjuna, having a panic attack in the middle of our day-to-day activities that, that bring up all of this conflict that in reality we have all been preparing for right from you know birth and the way we are raised and the way we uh, look at things. So... Does that make sense? That's like a the the shortest introduction I can give um, <laughs> about the Bhagavad Gita and why it's so relevant. No, absolutely, that was wonderful. And as you were talking, I'm like, well, I think maybe I should revisit it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think you should. And you know, this this Bhagavad Gita actually, you know, the way it is taught normally is that you know we just and that's the way it should be learned in many cases where you go from chapter to chapter. But the way I'm exploring that in our um, Shabda Sangha, where we meet once a month and go over uh, particular things, is is through themes, you know, where what is the purpose of this text, like you said, right? And we explored this for the last few months. And, and then we are going to explore, you know, how do we go about... Um, applying this in our day-to-day life and what is the role of devotion what is the role of the intellect what is the role of action and these um, we're going to explore it in these kinds of broad themes which makes a lot more sense to a lot of people rather than taking it verse by verse where you kind of lose track of what the previous verse said yes that that makes a lot of sense yeah (laughs) yeah well and so then my next question is and i i'm going to go ahead and acknowledge that um uh, you know, I think our culture is very kind of locked into a um, 
And when I say our culture, I'm talking about American culture is very locked into this, like a either, or, you know, there's this or this, or it's black and white, or, you know, there's yeah. a very strong binary, yes. but as I'm, I'm wanting to ask the question, where is the divine feminine in this, or is the divine feminine in this particular story or where, and how did, would, would Shakti, for example, even fit, fit into this, or does she, she not at all? Oh my goodness. Yes. So let's backtrack a little. Okay. When we say divine feminine or Shakti, you know, what happens is we kind of have this idea about the masculine and feminine based on our own experience of being male, female, or what the culture or the society teaches us about being male or female. And But that's really, you know, not really what we're talking about here when we talk about Shakti. So Shiva and Shakti. So remember I said Shaivites follow Lord Shiva, Vaishnavites follow Lord Vishnu. Yes. That is not what we're talking about when we say Shiva and Shakti. Shiva here refers to pure awareness that is without any attributes. So to understand this, we should take another step back and understand a little bit of this, this you know, the way that creation unfolds <clears throat> in the non-dual traditions. So in the beginning, there is nothing, right? There is nothing as in these two polarities of awareness and energy are completely entangled within each other and they are in such a state of equilibrium that there is no movement, nothing is going on. So this is very difficult for the, the mind to even grasp because you know our minds are linear. So there is nothing. And the first thing that begins this process of creation is this, you know, um, a tiny ripple of desire. And it's called Ichashakti, where there is a desire for this one, which is nothing, to become many. The one, which is nothing, to become many or, in, or everything. So the nothing becomes everything. That desire in arising in the nothingness is to become everythingness. So that desire, what it does is it creates the polarities. Now, say you are in deep sleep, okay? So you are fast asleep, no dreams, you're in deep sleep. And when you wake up from that, the first thing that happens to you is you become aware of yourself. You, your first movement is you become aware of yourself. So when you were in deep sleep, there was neither you nor you becoming aware of yourself. But when you are woken up from deep sleep, the first thing that happens before you become aware of anything else is you become aware of yourself. So that is known as self-recognition. So with this, the arising of desire in this nothingness, this polarity is created by this entity, or not even really an entity, there is an awareness of itself. So 
it's like saying, you know, Shiva and Shakti are one. But then what happens is Shiva becoming aware of himself is Shakti. So Shiva looks in the mirror and what he sees is Shakti. So Shakti is Shiva's power of self-recognition. So when you say, I know myself, the I is Shiva, the myself is Shakti. So in this, when we talk about this polarity, it has nothing to do with masculine or feminine characteristics, by the way. Shiva means absolute, attributeless awareness. And Shakti is power. So all powers, all attributes are Shakti. So in this grand scheme of things, when you look at it, whether you are masculine, feminine, aggressive, humble, whatever attributes, everything is Shakti. Because Shiva has no attributes, which is why when you look at some of the you know, um, the stories and so on, you'll see that Shiva is actually very pale and very, very, very translucent because he is attributeless. And Shakti is, you know, black or red or, you know, she's the one who's dynamic and has all of the powers. So essentially, Shiva's powers are Shakti. So Shakti is Shiva's powers. So this Understanding of Shiva and Shakti is extremely important if we are to see everything in from this aspect of where is Shakti, for instance, in the Bhagavad Gita. So Krishna himself says everything in creation is Prakriti. Prakriti means Shakti. So everything in creation is Shakti herself. So you know, our ability to speak, our ability to think, our ability to have any emotions, our ability to walk or, you know, do anything is Shakti. So Shakti is not like a feminine thing, you know, with, you know, a uterus or a particular attribute. No, no, no. Shakti means power. So the power to do anything, the power to be is Shakti. And Shiva is not masculine, you know, with masculine reproductive uh, organs, <laughs> but Shiva means absolute consciousness. So when we, we really have to make sure that we get this terminology right, because otherwise what happens is we kind of see, you know, things in very dualistic ways or dichotomous ways where we are saying, okay, this is the divine feminine. Actually, Everything that you can see or think or feel or not feel or not see is Shakti. Everything that is in creation is Shakti. There is nothing that is not Shakti. Does it make sense? It makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm just, it, it, so much sense. And I'm also thinking of the 24 year old me that was trying to read this without any background or context <laughs> and thinking how much more helpful this would have <laughs> this yes. would have been when I was trying to approach this, but it makes so much sense. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So this, you know, it's really important, I feel, especially for people who are interested in Shaktism to understand this terminology really well, because then what happens is otherwise you go into, you know, um, in, into very, um, very difficult kinds of concepts such as Kali or, 
you know, Lalita Mahatrupirasundari and you say, well, I'm like Kali. No, uh, you can't be like Kali because Kali is time and it's she's not a person, you know. And so to so to really understand that, um, I think we really need need to get these concepts right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I feel like this might be a nice segue into talking about your book, Shakti Rising. Sure. Um, then and. I'm wondering if you could, you know, maybe even before I ask specific questions, if we could just start with having you give a little, um, just an overview of, of what you're presenting in it. Yeah, so Shakti Rising um, is a book uh, about the 10 great cosmic forces known as the Dasha Mahavidya. So Dasha means 10, Maha is great, Vidya is wisdom. So so again, when you when in this, you know, going back to this, this creative, um, you know, the, the, the unfolding of creation that I just spoke about, where there initially, there is this desire for the one to become many. And in that split of the two polarities in this nothingness, suddenly, so now imagine this. So there is nothing. In nothingness, there is no space. There is no time. There is nothing. Okay? There is no mind. There is nothing going on. But for creation to happen, first of all, there needs to be, you know, time needs to start there. Space needs to start there. So the explosion that happens between, you know, when these two polarities separate, is that creation comes into existence through these 10 great cosmic forces. And these 10 great cosmic forces are forms of Shakti, and they are known as the Dasha Mahavidya. So there are 10 forms of the Divine Feminine. And when we talk about these 10 forms as the Mahavidya, we must understand that they are creative forces. For instance, Kali is symbolic of time, linear time. So this whole business of the past, the present, and the future, this can only lie on linear time. And when you look at Kali and her iconography, everything is really pointing to that. You know, she's in this, she's very dark, she is black. Um, because she's the first primordial creative force. And, you know, she is yet to actually, she is yet to come out of this womb of nothingness. And part of her actually remains obscured because she is also the transcendent now, which transcends linear time. So she is that non-linearity as well. And so everything in her iconography, her being in the cemeteries, she's dancing on corpses, everything about her is about death and destruction because time is death. You know, it is only because this moment dies that there can be the next moment. The past does not make any sense if it is not in the past, right? It has died and it's become a distant memory. The future is yet to come, but, you know, linking both of them is this kind of, uh, you know, this delusion or the illusion of continuity when actually there is none. So everything about Kali's iconography is about time. And so she is the power of time. Similarly, 
Bhubaneshwari is the power of space. So everything in her iconography is about this, um, you know, the idea of space that is in which creation appears, in which creation goes on, in, in the space in which time or Kali as time dances. So, and so like that, there are eight other forces of creation. And the, the one thing that, you know, is very um, important, I think, about this tradition, and you can tell me if this is true in your experience, Liz, is as opposed to, um, for instance, the, the Christian tradition maybe, and some other traditions, where, you know, the divine is all light. You know, the divine is all, you know, it's it's everything that is dark, everything that is not good or sacred or it is is not divine, right? And it's it's kind of the opposite of divine. Whereas in the non-dual traditions, particularly the one that we're exploring here, everything is divine. Everything is sacred. The very process of creation requires both light and dark. So... In Kali's iconography, we see that she is both linear time, which traps us in, you know, our patterns, but she is also the transcendent now. Similarly, Bhuvaneshwari is, you know, this idea of space that entraps us into, oh, you know, ownership of this or that. And she's, she also transcends that. So um, Shakti Rising basically explores the the dual aspects of the divine which is both light and dark the the light and the shadow and it's only when we understand the shadow aspects within ourselves and within creation that we can actually transcend both light and dark to that which unites and transcends both of these polarities so um that's what that book is really about and um it has a lot of you know, exercises and um, contemplations that go into understanding these kind of shadow aspects within ourselves and accepting them as, you know, yeah, this is, this is it, you know, this is how it is. And, and it's not like, you know, uh, it's not this vague, it is what it is, kind of, um, you know, um, verbiage that is used in the modern culture, where it is, you know, you, anything that you can't change, you basically say sour grapes, you know, it's not <laughs> that kind of an acceptance. Here, the acceptance comes from vidya, which is knowledge, which is to understand things at a very deeper, a deep level, and to see that it can't exist without its opposite. Light is light only because there is dark, and dark is dark because there is light. So neither can exist without the other. And it is in understanding these dualities that we can actually transcend them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes, it makes so much sense. And I'm, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, um, you know, the, the creation myth that's in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which is, you know, one of God's very first acts is to separate the light from the dark. Yeah. And he praises the light and it's he, it's, you know, always he uh, praises the light as as good and he makes no mention of the darkness uh it's just 
there is no comment on it. Uh, you know, but the darkness gets associated with, you know, gets personified as a devil or your, your bodily impulses or whatever, you know, uh, as feminine often. And, um, and so I think that that, which of course sets people up into a terrible catch 22, right? You can never, <laughs> you, yes. you, you, you can never be all light and all goodness and you're constantly failing. Um, so I think it's, it's that limited view that, you know, often it, it can push people who were, you know, raised in that tradition um, to seek something that feels uh, less polarized. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, I'm speaking from my own personal experience there for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it creates a sort of a conflict. Now, I do know um, a lot of, you know, Christian mystics who have transcended this kind of thing. And, yes. you know, and it's, it's just beautiful. And I have to tell you that I only went to convent schools, you know, do you know what a convent school is? I, yeah, I assume you're with nuns and it's yeah, Catholic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not particularly Catholic, but they are nuns. And um, they're, they have the best education, you know, in, in India, or, or at least back then. So um, most, a lot of us went to convent schools. And, you know, Christianity was never forced on anybody. And so, you know, the Christian students would go off and have their own class while we would have our own, you know, class with other cultural things. So it was never forced upon us, ever. And that's one beautiful thing about the, um, you know, the school system in India is it's very secular. However, you know, you do see the signs everywhere and you are influenced by it. And, you know, for me, because I was so deeply drawn to it, I uh, read the Bible when I was young and um, I still have a copy that a friend of mine who was a Christian gave it, gave me after med school and he said he was reintroduced to Christianity because I kept talking about it. So, um, you know, you can't help but fall in love with Jesus, right? I, I know. <laughs> you can't, you just can't help it. And, um, you know, what you said just a little while ago where people kind of dichotomize and say, well, it's either this or that, right? Yeah. Whereas um, that, that approach has never made any sense to me. It, you know, after I came to the U.S., I was talking to somebody and, um, and you know, he was a staunch Christian and he was saying something about the Bible and I enthusiastically joined in and I said, yeah, you know, it's in this book, blah, blah, blah. And he said, how do you know that? I said, why not? He said, uh, do you know anything about um, Christianity? I said, yeah, like, you know, I, I love Jesus. And he said, well, Jesus is the way. I said, yes, he is. He's like, no, I'm telling you, Jesus is the only way. I said, yes, I believe you. And he said, but you do know that you're going to hell, right? <laughs> and um, and I said, yes. In fact, I have also read Dante's Inferno. I know exactly which tier I'm going to be on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, you say that one of the things that I thought of too, is I did, I read the autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And yes. uh, I remember he, he talks about um, how great he thinks Jesus is. And I, I, I don't know if this is true because I haven't been inside self-realization fellowship or any of their, I don't think I have. Um, I lived very close to the one, the, the main one down in uh, Southern California, but um, 
but how there are often pictures of Jesus there up on the walls. And I just, I loved it. It's, it, it is, I was raised with the, with the mentality, like the guy who was talking to you. <laughs> and, and so I just found it so refreshing that, yeah, Jesus is great. Let's, you know, let's, let's put him up here and learn from him along with all of these other, you know, incredible teachers uh, that are, that are out there to guide us. I really yes, like that's absolutely. very refreshing. And I'll also say too, that um, one of my, you know, and so podcast listeners, I don't know if you've been listening from the beginning, but my very first podcast guest is uh, a couple who wrote a book about um, reclaiming the divine feminine uh, roots of the rosary, the pre-Christian uh, roots of praying the rosary, which of course is, you know, it's, it's not singing, but it's chanting. Uh, yeah. And it's, 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 it's a, it's a very beautiful prayer to the divine mother that, um, I practice it. And I think it really takes us out of that, um, that polarized either or place too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so I have, oh, I have so many things that we could talk about, but the, the one that's coming up next for me is it, I'm still thinking about your book, Shakti Rising is, um, kind of cause we've already been, uh, I feel like we've been dancing around this a little bit, but was the, the notion of desire. So when you were talking about the universe coming into existence, you used the word desire, I believe, right? There was the yes. nothingness, the oneness desire to become many. And um, I think that, you know, if we're thinking about these, these uh, more, um, you know, black and white, either or traditions, oftentimes desire falls into the category of the darkness, right? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Something bad, something you should reject. And yet, it, it, you know, it, in your writing, it seems like you're talking about something very different. So I wonder if you could, you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you, you do get the the visual of a snake and an apple, don't yes, you? Yes, which, oh, I could, <laughs> and the snake is not bad either, people. It's, it's, it's just connected to the divine feminine in so many ways. Uh, I want to do a whole show in the future about how wonderful the serpent is. I, I'm going to have to do that at some point. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, see, you know, the problem here is 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 manifold actually so let's examine desire first of all it's not even possible to live without desire to to wake up in the morning you should have the desire to wake up to you know get out of bed you should have the desire to do that you know to brush your teeth go to the bathroom you have to have desire and um when we say desire it's not we're not really talking i think the problem here arises when we either think of desire as lust or you think of it as greed or you think of it as you know um, the the force that creates bitterness and envy and um you know all of the other in in quotes sins so desire by itself is not the issue in fact desire is extremely important because even to tread the spiritual path you have to have desire you have to desire something higher so that you can give up the lower you have to desire freedom in order to give up your delusions you have to desire you know the transcendence in order to give up you know your your dualistic way of thinking if you don't desire um you know, this vidya, this knowledge, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to give up anything else, right? So um, desire is the fuel for everything. And 
it should be taken that way. Now, the, there is a way to live without desire, and that is to be in a cave with all of your senses cut off from everything else. You know, where you are completely turned inward, you, the world does not concern you, you are not engaged with anyone or anything. And you have conquered your hunger, thirst, and your bodily, you know, functions. You can live that way. But the problem even there is the minute you leave that cave and come out, that fundamental force of desire is going to come to get you because it is the fundamental force of creation. You cannot escape it. If you're going to be in the world, if you're going to be alive, you're going to be embodied, it is there. So I think what happens is people misunderstand this to a large extent because of the these, um, you know, the forces of greed and envy and so on. If you can hone into that energy of desire and use it in every possible way towards your goal, and I don't mean just a spiritual goal, by the way, even to, to you know, progress in life, even to, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, attain a goal, um, get a job, do well in your job, you have to have that. And what happens with this desire is the desire itself is not the problem. It is what we do with it that becomes the problem. So if that becomes misplaced into, you know, un into projecting it on other people, trying to own things. Now, desire is very different than ownership. So this is a point that I want to say cannot be overemphasized. The desire itself is not the problem. It's wanting to own an object that is the problem. So if you desire somebody, for instance, it's no problem. You know, as long as you stay within your own, you know, arising energy, it's not an issue. But the minute you project it onto somebody, onto that particular person, and you want to own that person, you want to own the experience that's when it becomes a problem and it becomes, you know, um, subject to greed, to envy, to anger, to delusion, all of that. So if, on the other hand, you just enjoy that energy, you use that energy in your own process rather than trying to manipulate your experience or other people around you, then that energy is available to you. And that is that alchemy, you know, it is that alchemy of desire, which is extremely important on the spiritual journey, because you have to learn how to alchemize, you know, this, the energy from being outwardly directed to making it internal and using it as the fuel for your own practice, for your own goals, without concerning yourself with other people, other things, the external world and the external objects. And in that way, there is no difference between you and the person living in the cave, except you are in the world, you are engaging the, with the world joyfully, you're enjoying all these experiences, but you don't want to own any of it. So for you, it's not going to be a problem because you're already not in the cave. So your, your senses are completely open and and enjoying the beauty of every moment, 
because this desire has turned into this formidable force. So, like I told you, you know, Ichha Shakti or this, the, the energy of intention or, you know, intention is a little different than desire, but it's pretty much, it's quite close. The coming, you know, and when we come back to, you know, now you have this Ichha Shakti and it unfolds into 36 different tattvas or, you know, aspects of reality, aspects of creation. And you, you know, we are right at that last point of the uh, tattvas and we begin our ascent back on the spiritual journey. So when you come to the top, the last thing that you're going to use is Ichha Shakti or the power of desire in order to, in order for the many to become one. So you can imagine arriving at that that force or the energy of desire or itcha is actually a very advanced level of practice uh -huh. until then energy the energy of desire is really driving this whole process does that make sense yes it does it does so, yeah it has nothing to do with you know um how we think about desire which is it's a good or a bad thing. It it all depends on how it's used and where yes. your focus is. Yes. Yes, this makes so much sense. I'm also thinking too, this is, I don't know, let's I, we'll see if this feels like a funny segue or not, but I was I wanted to ask you of one of the many questions I had for you was about um, the fact that you're a, you're a doctor in the Western medical tradition. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think of Western medicine as being completely allergic to anything spiritual, um, <laughs> which is perhaps unfair. Um, but I, I guess I was thinking about the, the creation of the human body, uh, reflecting this very process that you're talking about. Um, Absolutely. You know, when one cell becomes many, becomes two, becomes more, becomes more, becomes more, which eventually, you know, becomes a human body. Um, yes. I, I don't, yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could, you know, maybe, uh, it, it feels like this, this, what you're describing, the way yeah. you speak about it actually feels like it's beautifully complementary to your work as a doctor. It does is. That, does that feel right or? Absolutely. I mean, okay. you know, so here's the thing, you know, the, and, you know, we'll, we can talk about this later, but the, um, my, my next book, which is coming out is, is really about the Sri Chakra. And if you if you have any idea about the Sri Yantra or the Sri Chakra, it's this beautiful, you know, this geometric figure that is um, that is full of triangles and and all that. And basically, it is telling us that there is a single point in the center which becomes many. So it's one becoming many, and and how it manifests in our life, right? And the what you just said is so poignant because if you can take even one aspect of what we call the darshana or the view and you apply it to everything in your life your life will change mm -hmm. so what you said just now one becoming many let's examine this okay so here is this one cell that becomes a human being right the imagine one cell which is undifferentiated becomes differentiated into 
all of these different things that do different things, right? There is a bone cell, there is a heart cell, that is a, there is a muscle cell, all different things. A muscle cell cannot do what a bone cell does. And yet they all came from the same one. Mm-hmm. So it is with all of creation, right? So there is nothing, there is the nothingness, which becomes everythingness. And you see it, and you've heard this, right? Where, we, where you say, well, it takes all kinds. Right. So it takes it takes all kinds of people, seven plus billion of us, each of us unique, different. It's like we're all those different cells coming from the one undifferentiated one. Right. And so it is, you know, this is how I look at vascular biology, how, you know, the the arteries get clogged up, for instance, and uh, become become a heart attack or you go into heart failure or you have a heart rhythm problem or you have a valve problem, it starts at the center, undifferentiated, nothing is going on. Or if you take even like, you know, your chromosome with a gene, you you have inherited that gene, but it's not expressing itself. The minute it starts expressing, you know, it's like it blows up into this differentiation, into this, um, you know, particular manifestation that is going to happen. And so, Whatever you can look at, whatever you can experience in your life, whether it's, you know, biology or whether it is um, astronomy or astrology, or you even look at your own family, right? How did your family start? Nothing. Your children were just a thought. They all were just a, a vague desire, right? A vague intention. Mm-hmm very long ago. And now look at them. They are, you know, you may have grandchildren, you may have, you know, uh, other kinds of family members, you may have um, son and sons-in-law and daughters-in-law, how they all happen, right? They came from nothing. So um, nothing with just this vague sense of itcha, right? Which then blows up and manifests into all these different things that we see. So it's this whole process of creation is really a beautiful thing that you can, if you can just look at it from one aspect, your entire life will change because then you have nothing that you can actually blame somebody for because you just see that they are a product of the same thing, just like I am, just like you are. We're actually no different at all. It's just that we have been filtered through our conditioning. It, we've been filtered through our genes, our karma. And, and so we have ended up in the different places that we are. That's all. You know, but essentially that, that undifferentiated center that is, you know, that basically turns us all is the same. You know, mm-hmm. and our job is to get to that. And however we get to that, is fine. There is no one path that is better than the other as long as we are all getting there, right? So it's it's actually one of the the gems of this tradition is is to be able to take one thing and apply it to everything else. And that has been the gift of my teacher actually who has taught me how to see and view everything in that particular way. I love it. And, and I'm imagining this is is clearly influencing your work with the Shopta Institute, uh, correct? Um, yes, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole the whole point of Shabda Institute is this, you know, really uh, practical teachings. You know, I think we've had enough of esoteric teachings that really are, you know, they remain as useless concepts and that you can't really apply it anywhere. So um, my purpose in Shabda is to really make everything highly applicable into your in your daily life, you know, as you are driving around, you know, and um, coming across traffic or having an interaction with your child or your husband or your wife or your colleague and all kinds, you know, that, that internal conflict that puts you in the middle of the dharmakshetra, your, your, you know, battlefield, that's where the teaching needs to be applied. It's not when you are nice and quiet and meditative that the teaching <laughs> is applied, right? <laughs> right. It's very easy then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's very easy. And the then cave. You're, just, you're in the cave, highly enlightened, and you come out, and then, you know, you're just like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or you project that out into everybody else. My children are the jerk or whoever's distracting yes, me, right? Whoever, right? right? right. Yeah. yeah. Who, who disturbed my meditation, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I I also wanted to ask you, well, and I know that yeah, I, I want to make sure we have time for you to talk about the your most recent book that I think you're still working on. You can correct me if that's not correct, but... Um, Yes, yes. It's okay. in, in production now. Okay, okay. But before we do that, I also want to ask you about um, your book, Glorious Alchemy, which I have not had a chance to read yet. Living the Lalita Sahasranama. Did I say that right? Oh, that's perfect. Wow, okay, see? Practicing. I, I'm just with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was reading a little bit about it, and I I know it's a, um, it's chanting the, the many names of the Divine Mother. Is that correct? Well... It's it's more than that. And, okay. Um, so the the thousand names um, of the Lalita Sahasranama. And so, you know, what is the Lalita Sahasranama? First of all, what is Lalita? Lalita Devi is one of the Dasha Mahavidya, and she is also known as Tripura Sundari, and she is mm. third Mahavidya. Okay. And so when we look at the history of um, Shaktism very early on, it kind of uh, splits off into two main paths. One is known as Kali Kula, which is based or centered around fierce goddesses like Kali. And the other is known as Shri Kula, which is centered around Shri, who is uh, Lalita Devi, Tripura Sundari, and other less fierce deities. Now, I want to say here that... Um, Lalita Devi is as fierce as Kali. So it's just their mode of operation is different. So, so Sri Kula is, you know, this whole path in which there is Sri Vidya. Sri Vidya is a particular tradition, a tantric tradition, which has Vedantic elements, which um, is really based on um, Lalita Mahatripura Sundari or, you know, this Lalita Devi, who is the central deity of Sri Vidya. Sri Vidya also refers to the central mantra of uh, this particular tradition, which is known as the Panchadashi Mantra. So the entire philosophy, practice, objectives, goals, and fruit of the practice 
is summarized in the 1000 names of Lalita Devi, known mm -hmm. as the Lalita Sahasranama. Sahasra means thousand, Nama means name. So Lalita Sahasranama means the, the thousand names of Lalita. So they're not really just, you know, uh, names that are randomly put together. It, there is a very, very logical order to in which these namas appear. And it's an unfolding of the entire philosophy of the practice. Why we even, what is the divine feminine? What, it, what even is it? You know, who is Shakti? Who is Shiva? It all starts with the view, the darshana, and it goes into, you know, the, the nitty gritties of practice and really the goal of practice. So when we are calling Devi a particular name, it is basically a, an attribute that we are aspiring to and, and how we get there. So it's, it's really a, a phenomenal text. And that's how most Sahasranamas are. That's how all Sahasranamas are, I would say, which it really is an unfolding of the path to that deity. And so this Lalita Sahasranama is that. And in Glorious Alchemy, uh, what I've done is, in the first part, I just explore the entire um, path and its view and you know, it, it doesn't even have any of the Sahasranamas there. And in the second part, basically, it's a commentary. It's a running commentary of the the 1000 names. So basically, you know, you kind of cross-reference one versus the other and see and until you get a holistic picture of the entire uh, path of the uh, Shakti, basically, of the Divine Feminine. And... You have a recording too, don't you? Of you, yes, chanting, chanting it. it. Yeah, yes, yes. It's on SoundCloud, and okay. um, yeah, it's easily available. And um, it's it's the Lalita Sasranama. Yes. Okay. And I will make sure I put a link to that in the show notes for those that want to listen. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to. I, I listened a little. I found it. I think on. Someone maybe put it on YouTube too. Yes, uh, it is yeah. on YouTube as well. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I, I'm, and I, I feel like I could ask you um, millions of questions, but I'm also conscious of our time here. <laughs> yes. So I want to ask you, um, hmm, let's see how I want to frame this up. Well, I, I oftentimes like to ask guests to sort of, and I think this is perfect because you've been referring to this earlier, but how we place whatever spiritual practice we're talking about on these episodes, how we place it in the context of what's happening right now uh, in our world. Um, and I, that can be personal and that can be global, right? There's all kinds of awful things happening in the world um, that we need to um, find our way through and that may be playing out in our lives in a variety of different ways. So yeah, I, I'm curious what you might say about... Um, and I, I guess I, maybe I would lens this either through, I, well, it's all, it's, it's all complimentary, but I guess I, through, maybe just through the work that you're doing, that your writings and also your work through the Shabda Institute on how, how, um, how do we use these practices to keep our sanity, <laughs> to yeah, yeah. navigate? And that's such a good question. And it's such a practical question. See, the thing is, you know, what I was saying earlier is the, the view is everything. And 
the darshana, and I emphasize this a lot with my students, is you, your view of the path should replace your, you know, worldview. And only then can, can the path become effective because mm. otherwise, you know, you kind of have a hodgepodge of your own ideas a little bit from the view and, you know, you're just kind to just trying to um, make do with things and it never works like that, never works like that. So the, the view should really replace your thinking. And that's why the teacher is so important because they are continuously redirecting you to the view. And, and that's how your thought patterns and your internal landscape actually begins to change. So when, when we look at the view of Shaktism, or when we are looking at the view of where this whole thing about Shakti comes from, one of the important aspects, well, two important aspects. One is the, the uh, cyclical nature of time. You know, so I spoke quite a bit about Kali. So time is linear, but it's also cyclical, as in, you know, it just, you know, because of our, the illusion of the past, present and future, it kind of happens in cycles, as in there is life, and then there is death, and then there is life again, and then there is death. And this, uh, this idea that, you know, we kind of, we are born, and then, you know, we live our life, and then we die, and, and then disappear, is not part of this view. Here, what happens is all the experiences that you have collected over your, your lifetime, you know, kind of go with you into the next lifetime. So in the next lifetime, you're taking, you know, the experiences you've had of your countless previous lifetimes, taking a part of that and living it out in this life. And as you go through this life, you're collecting more experiences, more of, you know, your attachments and your, you know, little likes and dislikes and your aversions and your attachments. And they become part of your karma. You become part of the package and that package goes into the next life. So it's a cyclical thing and that is known as samsara. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the spiritual path is to transcend samsara into what is known as nirvana or freedom from samsara. So the cyclical nature of time is another part. If you if you contemplate this and or if this is all you did, then you'll understand everything going on in the world around you to be cyclical. Everything is played out as collective karma, as individual karma. And even though we think like, okay, the, right now it is really bad, right? Actually, this is nothing. If you, again, you know, this is why, it, you know, reading these great epics is so important because you see that back then in the Dvapara Yuga, which I referred to earlier, which are these, there are four Yugas in Hinduism, we talk about four Yugas, which are really enormous, um, ginormous chunks of time. Each Yuga is millions of years and there are four such Yugas. And the Satya Yuga begins with, you know, time begins with Satya Yuga, which is the age of truth. And you would think, wow, that's amazing. He, you know, in Satya Yuga, like, you know, there is total alignment with righteousness and with dharma and virtue. But even then, you know, there is adharma. And even in Satya Yuga, Vishnu needs to come down to earth in order to destroy some of the adharma. So even in Satya Yuga, 
you know, we were not uh, free of adharma, which is the opposite of, uh, you know, virtue or righteousness. So in every age, and then, you know, Satya Yuga, and then there is the Treta Yuga, then there is Dwapara Yuga, and then there is Kali Yuga. So progressively with each Yuga, there is less and less and less dharma or alignment with dharma or, or righteousness. But in each Yuga, it's not like anything is ever free of that shadow aspect because creation necessarily requires shadow. So there will never be a time that you're only going to get all light. Never. It's never going to happen because the idea of creation is to have drama and to have, you know, all of the ups and downs of the drama and, you know, the villains and the heroes. So when we understand this, we see that, you know, things are just unfolding exactly the way they should. And it is in this unfolding that we need to learn to live and thrive and love and grow despite all this. And it is because each of these, you know, these world events need to become the stimuli for us to transcend, uh, you know, our own ideas of, of right and wrong and transcend uh, our own internal conflict. So the way to deal with things is actually to change yourself. And I can't emphasize this enough. Very often we go out into the world trying to change the world, never happens. When you change yourself, the world around you starts changing. And this is something I have seen in my own life and the life of my many students. They're completely flabbergasted that just when they started to change, the world around them started changing. And so this is why Gandhi said, you know, be the change you wish to see. So um, that is really, you know, a very profound uh, statement, in my opinion. Wow. Yes. And yes, we, we can, I guess another way to think about that is we, we, isn't there part of like an AA mantra or something about we worry about the things that we can control or something like that? I, I'm not yeah, saying that right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the serenity prayer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's, there's great uh, truth in that, you know, and, yeah. uh, but here we go one step further and say, you know, what am I seeing wrong here? You know, when you turn the attention upon yourself, see, it is that, that thing we were talking about earlier about desire. When, when the desire turns outward, right? That's when all this blaming, you know, naming, shaming begins. Yes. But when you turn that inward and you say, what am I looking at? And where is the, the where is the fault in my perception? Things around you start changing. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's quite miraculous how that happens. Oh, and I feel like we all could use more of that so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'd love to have you uh, tell us about this uh, recent book that you're working on. And I, you know, I'd also just love to, when it's done, maybe you could come back and talk to us more about it too. <laughs> oh yes. I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, as I said, this book is, is about the Sri Chakra and, you know, it is, um, it's known as fractals of reality, living the Sri Chakra. And it's really understanding, you know, this, um, the Sri Chakra from a very, very practical standpoint and how it's applicable to you, whether or not you know anything about it, you will learn about it, but actually you learn to apply its different principles because what happens in the Sri Chakra is 
as you may know, the Sri Yantra or the Sri yeah. Chakra is this geometric figure which has, you know, these 44 triangles surrounded by uh, two layers of petals, yes. uh, eight petals, and then the 16 petals, which is then surrounded by a square with, you know, four gates. And um, the 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 Sri Chakra, the Sri Yantra is known as the king of chakras or the king of yantras because every aspect of your life is included in there. There is nothing in your life that is not included in the Sri Chakra. And it's not just your life. It is, you know, your own mind, your own internal landscape, your external world, the world at large, as well as the universe as large. Everything is in the Sri Chakra. And so understanding this, the unity of yourself, you know, your microcosm with the macrocosm is the whole purpose of this sadhana or the practice of the Sri Chakra. And so this, this book is really um, a practical kind of a handbook on the Sri Chakra. Uh, wonderful. Does it, does it have a name yet? Or are you still working on that? Yeah, no, the, the name is Fractals of Reality. Oh, Fractals of Reality. Oh, I love it. Okay, yes. wonderful. And when should we look for it? Do you know, or are you still in process? Um, so um, I think it will be available in the next year. And um, so uh, we are going to, um, you know, the, the crowdfunding campaign for this will be available soon, where you can pre-order the book, and uh, that will go into the production of the book. So I can share that link with you when um, when it's set up. Oh, that would be wonderful. I can add it to the show notes even, you know, um, even after the show is aired too, so that anybody listening to it in the future could could see that and participate. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you, yeah. Liz. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kavita. This was such a wonderful conversation. I, I feel like I could keep this going for a while, but um, we'll take a break and maybe to be continued uh, to, to explore your, your next book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's such a joy to be here and to be talking with you. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. My pleasure, truly. And as always, thanks to all of you who show up and listen and you know, participate with your heart. It's a, it's a real joy to get to share these, these conversations with you. And, you know, if you like the show, um, you can subscribe to it. You can give it a favorable review. You can tell a friend about it. You can do all those things. And until next time, I'll talk to you again soon. Take good care. hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com, where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine, and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you back here soon. 